Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Hello all, it's Rugby Dungeon time again, which I'm sure you're aware because you've downloaded it, so you obviously knew that. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, and if you don't already subscribe, do so. If you do subscribe, please leave me a review. So there you go, pretty standard drills for you. You can find me on Twitter, at jbeardmore, you can find this podcast at the Rugby Dungeon, and you can find the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast at Rugby Podcast. That comes out every Monday, and as for this podcast, you'll notice we're a little bit late. We are coming out from now on every Thursdays. So look, so look out for that. Today's guest is Rich Freeman. Trying to get 60 consecutive minutes of Rich's time is almost impossible. He's such a busy man. But I've finally, finally done so, and I can tell you right now, I'm so glad that I did. I was put in touch with Rich through a Twitter follower of mine when I had an inquiry about Japanese rugby. This guy's knowledge on Japanese rugby is second to none, and it is completely fascinating. Japan is one of the upcoming nations. They obviously did very well in the World Cup. They've now got a super rugby franchise, so sit up and pay attention. Before any of that, though, let's just have a quick word for our two sponsors today. Of course, we've still got Field and Flower, who have supported us from the very start, the, pro- the provider of subscription grass-fed meat direct to your door. Go on the website, Field and Flower, use our code RUGBY20. I won't go into it again because, let's face it, we do it every week here, so... So, unless you're new, you know exactly what the drill is. Our second sponsor today is Beer52, good friends of the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast, and they work with only the most interesting breweries to get you the best beers that the UK has to offer. Let's face it, I don't need to describe this service any further. It's very good, the beer is excellent, and it comes direct to your door. Check them out. Check them out, even if it's just a laugh at some of the hipster names of some of the beers. But I tell you what, these guys really know how to brew and how to select beers. Beer52, our code RUGBY20. Okay, guys, I think it's about time for a rugby interview. So, sit back, and I hope you enjoy it. How are you, Rich? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks. You sound like you've had an incredibly hectic month. It's been, yeah, pretty uh, full on. We obviously uh, had the Olympics in August and, and the Japan Sevens team did uh, rather better than expected. And with the 12-hour time difference, that was sort of 10 o'clock at night till 10 o'clock in the morning shifts. A week after that, we had the uh, launch of the top league with three rounds into the top league so far. And then just today, I was at the Australian Embassy to MC the launch or the Japan launch for the Brisbane Tens in February, at which Panasonic World Knights will be taking part. So pretty non-stop then? Pretty much so, yeah. Now, for my more observant listeners, 
they will notice that you are not, in fact, Japanese. So why don't you just let them know what you do and how you arrived at what you do? Ah, a bit of a Mongol, born in Malta, brought up in Cornwall, school in London, university in London. Played a bit of rugby in England, got injured, so I came out here ooh, 25 years ago, originally just for a year. Um, stayed a little bit, got a phone call to go and play rugby in Colorado, played, got injured again, got back to England, got injured again, decided that probably playing wasn't a good idea. So I came back here, was coaching a junior high school back in the late 90s and got offered um, a job doing some writing part-time, which has basically snowballed. And for the last 15 years, I've been covering Japan rugby full-time. Um, I now work for the Kyoto News Agency over here, which is the major Japanese news agency. I write for Rugby World, for World Rugby, do a lot of work with New Zealand television. And last season was the pitch side commentator for the Sunwolves for their games in Tokyo. Wow. Well, let's start with the Sunwolves then. Uh, how would you view their season this year? Considering how it started, mm-hmm. I thought coaches and players did very well. Uh, they weren't helped by a front office that um, is a little bit out of their depth. But I thought that Hammett did a great job as coach. I thought the players did very well. Obviously, there were a couple of big defeats. But, you know, at the start of the season, we were probably thinking there were going to be even more. The fact that they won one game, drew another, and probably could have won two others as well. You know, I think they they did well. And, and the great thing from the Japanese point of view was the crowds they had over here in Japan were brilliant. I mean, not only was Chichibuno Mir full, it was a much younger crowd who were getting into it. They were booing the referee. They didn't like a decision. They were <laughs> cheering. The old fuddy-duddies were sort of quite aghast at the first game and like because they expect rugby to be played in sort of like a funeral-type atmosphere. But um, great for rugby and, you know, great for the future of Japan. How does the Sunwolves differ then from the top league? The big problem with rugby at the moment is it is corporate-based. I mean, there is the top league, they are professional, but they still retain a corporate identity. And so for fans, it's very difficult to know who they should support. Because if you're not an employee of Panasonic, why would you support them? Unless you happen to like one of the players from his time at high school or or, or university. So there is a problem, and that's why the crowds at the top league games aren't as good. With the Sunwolves, basically, they've created this new franchise. They've said, right, this is a team. It's a Japan team playing against some of the best players in the world. It's a professional league. It's full-on professionalism. And as I say, it has attracted a much younger audience, which obviously looking ahead towards 2019 is is a good thing. So just going back a second, you're saying... Corporations set up the teams, there isn't a club structure, and if you support a team, it's because you probably work for the corporation that set it up. Basically, the teams are run by corporations. Basically, what happened, particularly after the Second World War, but some of the clubs possibly are a little bit older, um, companies decided they needed to create athletic clubs for their workers to keep their workers happy. And so it's not just rugby, it's across the board. Football used to be like that. Now, what happened was in the build-up to the 2002 Soccer World Cup, 
we got the J League over here and the J League came in and just said, right, we are not going to be an old corporate based team. We're going to be regional. And so they put teams into towns and they tried to create a community sort of identity. Beneath it, there was still a corporate backing. I mean, everyone knows that Yokohama Marinos, for example, are backed by Nissan or Arara Reds are backed by Mitsubishi. But they are now a regional team. And so when you grow up in Yokohama, for example, you know, all the kids now aspire to be soccer players and they have academies. The football teams came in, they set up academies and there is a, a, a path for a young football player that he can see from the age of six to playing professionalism. The problem with rugby is it's not a club-based culture. So for kids, they go to a rugby school, they then go to a junior high school, they go to a high school, they go to a university. And it's, it's not like back home where you're playing mini rugby down at the club that maybe your dad played for and that there is a pathway through to, you know, senior rugby. Right, I see. So if you were living in, say, different parts of the country and you worked for Panasonic, you'd probably support Panas- Panasonic rather than your regional team. I had no idea that, that that kind of structure even existed, not even with football, to be fair. Yeah, no, I mean, that's basically... I mean, as I say, with football, they've changed it. And so now, you know, people in, in where I live in Yokohama, they are mad passionate fans of the Yokohama Marinos who are the sort of the top team and then there's a couple of other sides in Yokohama also um yeah I mean basically it, it, it's it's a funny thing at rugby in Japan they they will hold um double headers on a Saturday yeah and first game for example will be Toshiba Cannon and the second game will be Panasonic Suntory and what you see at the end of the first game all the Toshiba and Canon fans are leaving because they've done their duty and supported their company. <laughs> and Panasonic and, and, and Suntory fans are walking in and they sort of cross midway in the stands. There obviously are some hardcore rugby fans that will stay and watch both games. But um, it, it's one of the things that rugby does really need to address. It's been talked about by a lot of people over here is, you know, to really to build on what happened last year at the World Cup and build on this boom that has happened in the last year, they're going to have to get rid of this corporate identity and try and create teams in in towns and and get the backing of the local population. That is so bizarre. If I'm... okay, so if I'm a child who enjoys playing rugby, where do I learn the sport? Is that just purely in schools? Right, well, what happens is, and this is... yeah... um, Generally, when you, for example, if you're four years old, you would join what are called a rugby school. Yeah. And the coaches there, um, now I'm going to be politically correct, they're not particularly good. They are, you know, they're fathers who, um, you know, are very keen, which is obviously a great thing. Not particularly well versed in coaching, will teach tackle skills that are basically for adults, not aimed at four year old kids. The kids are forced to wear headgear from the day they start at four years old until they're 18, which is something I'm particularly against. Um, And that's what they'll do till they go to junior high school. So until they're 12 years old. Yeah. Then at junior high school, what happens is um, there's a thing called Bukatsu, which is the club system. And basically that is the extracurricular activity that you do at junior high school. And you choose one, whether it's the brass band, the rugby club, the baseball club, English language club, whatever. And you do that 330 days a year 
What? Eight hours a day, eight hours a day during the holidays. There is no seasonal sport. You play that, and that is all you do. No. And, you know, so rugby, a contact sport. You know, I think that's ridiculous, basically. Well, it it's astounding, quite frankly. I mean. I, I suppose you could work on your skills and play on the weekend or play every other weekend or something. It's it's a very well, unique yeah, concept. They don't actually play that many games. It's training, training, training. And if you're lucky, you might get a game. But yeah. So I imagine that would lead Japan to produce a very kind of a very technically sound player, if nothing else. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the team at the moment, the Japanese are very skillful because they've been training so hard they probably don't enjoy rugby as much as maybe some of the foreigners that play over here um it's more of a duty to them for some of them it was basically a way to get to a good university Mm -hmm. um, which is another issue in japan because when you're 18 you go to university you're not well you're not generally allowed to play top league this year we've had the first exception where a university student has been allowed to play top league um yeah, I mean, for the players, that's all they've ever been doing. And, you know, you just got to think they've got to be burnt out because, you know, where, where we're from, you know, you played rugby in the winter, you played another sport in the Easter, cricket or swimming or rowing in, in the summer, and you rejuvenated, especially if you'd had a bad season. The last thing you want to do is just keep playing rugby all year. You yeah. want to take a break and then, you know, Come August and pre-season starts, you know, you get the boots out, and there's a bit of mud on from last season, you scrape it off, and you get excited. Ha! Huh. I don't know about that. I've spent many a miserable summer waiting for pre-season to come about. In relation to these players, then, playing 365 days a year, how do they then make the jump from that stage to top league? Do they need to be employed by the company itself, or the corporation, should I say? Well, the university system here, I mean, in the old days, university rugby was probably regarded as being almost a higher level than corporate rugby. It's only in the last 20, 30 years that the corporate sides, particularly because they've started bringing in the foreigners and some of the players have been given more time off to train. Now there is a huge gap between the top league and the universities. I mean, basically, the top rugby players, they go to a university at 18, they will play university rugby for four years. Yeah. Um, as I say, there is a guy this year who has sort of broken the trend and he has decided and his university amazingly agreed to it. Um, they turned around and said, fine, we will let you play for Panasonic. And so he is now, you know, a 21 year old, very good player. He played for Junior Japan when he was still at high school. His name is Takuya Yamasawa and, you know, probably be one of the stars of 2019. He is playing for Panasonic, and so he's getting coached by Robbie Deans day in, day out, which, I mean, can only be a good thing for a young rugby player. Yeah, what position is uh, Yamasawa? He's a fly half. So why have the rules been relaxed between universities and the top leagues? It's something, I mean, Eddie Jones (laughs) used to go on about it for a long time, and it's probably one of the reasons why he eventually just got fed up and decided, well, I'm I'm leaving, as he did at the end of the last World Cup. Um, Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things that's been going on. The top coaches have always said, why is there this gap of four years when, you know, probably the most formative years for a rugby player between 18 and 22, why can't they play the highest level? Because we had guys like Fujito and Fukuoka who were playing at the World Cup last year. They'd never played a top league game. Wow. So, 
they were going from university rugby, which is pretty Mickey Mouse because it's very much the have and have nots. I mean, you know, the, the top university sides will have 150 players in their club. The, the poor university sides will scrape 30 players. And so you have so many mismatches until the final rounds of the university championship. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things that hopefully more players will follow. Is Japanese university sport more akin to American university sport than UK university sport? Um, yeah, I mean, the top universities here will offer scholarships. Um, yeah, probably not financially as big as the American universities. Um, there are certain players, I'm not going to name them, that I know that basically left university after four years and then had to spend a couple more years studying to try and catch up and actually get their degree. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the traditional thing in Japan, in, in Japan is you, you, know, you go to a good high school, you then go to the good university, you then join a company. That in the past was the company that you then worked for for life. That's also changing. There is more sort of transfers now with players leaving one company and, and going to another. Wow. So what kind of numbers in the Japanese World Cup squad had only played university rugby? Uh, just off the top of my head, I haven't got the squad here. Fukuoka, Fujita, Uchida. No, Uchida had just started playing for Panasonic. I think there were two students in the side That's last year. And, and did any of them start? Uh, Fukuoka, I think, started against Scotland. Fujita started against the USA. That's, um, a... That's incredible. And, yeah, uh, yeah, they're both very good players, and but you, you, you sit there and think, well, how good could they have been if, if they hadn't wasted four years playing against, you know, other students? If they'd been playing against, you know, some of the top players that we've got over here at the moment, you know, Corey Jane, Liam Messam, Richard Kahui, Jacques Three. you know, imagine playing against those guys week in, week out, how much that would have helped you develop and, and then bridge that gap because then you're suddenly going up and playing against Scotland, South Africa or, or Samoa at the World Cup and you're not going to be daunted and you're not going to be as turned out with both those students a little bit. They were a little bit like sort of rabbits in, in the flashlights. They were a bit daunted by the whole thing. So is it the Japanese Union driving things forward? And what's in motion at the moment that will allow things to change? Um, well, I think up until last year, it was Eddie Jones. Right. Um, I don't... The union... I mean, I did an interview with the chairman a couple of weeks ago, and um, I think the gist of what I said at the end of it was, well, he talks a very good talk, now will he walk the walk? Because he did talk about things like this, actually. And this was before Yamasawa officially made the, the, the decision to play for Panasonic. Um, he was talking about, for example, centrally contracting the seven-a-side squad because one of the problems Japan's had over the years is that um, during the seven-a-side series, a lot of the times the top players will be prevented from playing because they've got to play for their company teams in the, in the top league. So there are certain individuals within the union who do understand what is needed. Mm -hmm. There are certain individuals in the union who would rather things stayed as they were 30, 40 years ago, particularly if it means that their university is strong again. 
got you. So who has the balance of power in Japanese rugby? Is it the Sunwolves? Is it the top league? Is it the federation? That's a good question. Um, federation don't really have too much control, to be honest. It's interesting that they have just announced that Jamie Joseph is not only going to be head coach of the Brave Blossoms, he is now in charge or overseeing the Sunwolves and the under-20s and junior Japan. Now, how much of a free reign he gets is an interesting point because the unions don't basically run the sides as such. You know, the, the, the players, the professionals, are contracted by their companies, their company employees. And so at the end of the day, you know, when the Sunwolves was trying to get their squad, one of the issues that was brought up by the companies was, first of all, insurance. Who's going to pay if, you know, Shota Horie or Keita Inagaki gets injured for the Sunwolves and misses a top league season? Who's paying for that? Will it be the Sunwolves or will it be the union? Why would Panasonic have to pay for it if they're releasing one of their players? And and the other issue, obviously, as the seasons get longer and longer, is, you know, the top league sides have said, well, hold on a sec, you know, we don't want our players burnt out by playing 15 test matches a year, 15 games for the Sunwolves, and then trying to do 15 games for, for Panasonic, for example. Which I guess is a fair point, actually. Yeah. I mean, you know, they pay their wages. As I say, a lot of the clubs, it's it's a, a an interesting mix between some of the players that are employed as rugby players and they don't do any work other than play rugby. Some of the players, obviously not the bigger names, they, they go in and do a nine-to-five job, although they're probably let off at three o'clock to go out and do some training. <laughs> a huge disparity then. Yeah, yeah. All right, so when a Panasonic or someone puts together a team, I assume they're doing it through the prestige and the good of the company rather than the prestige and, or, and the good of the game. In fact, they might not care if the game grows one jot. It's about the company. That's, yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Um, you know, I talked to, actually it was interesting, Matt O'Connor, who was the ex-Leicester coach many years ago when he was at Kubota, and he said a similar thing. He said as long as Kubota are in the top league and their name is mentioned, you know, they'll continue to have a team. I mean, the teams, they don't, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. Like when Sonny Bill Williams came over here a few years ago for Panasonic, you never saw him in a commercial and you were thinking, well, why not? You've got one of the biggest names in the world. And he wasn't used by Panasonic. Having said that, when George Gregan was here, every time anyone mentioned George Gregan, you know, currently playing for Suntory Sun Goliath. So I guess Suntory were thinking, well, you know, that their name's in the paper every so often, that, that's good enough. So what would be the point in them bringing over Sonny Bill if they weren't going to use him commercially? I thought that would be exactly the point that you bring him over. Well, that's what I thought. And particularly because at that time, Panasonic had just scrapped, I think, was it their badminton team, which was a leading badminton team because the company had uh, had some very serious financial problems. Um, I, yeah, sometimes it's almost like one chairman will decide that he just wants to get up get one up on another chairman from another company. That's fascinating. And, you know, we've got Sonny Bill, who are you going to get? And so they turn around and get Jacques Ferry, and then, it, well, who are you going to get? And, you know, Suntory have just got George Smith back this year, so um, what? there might be 
well, some it, of that as well. It is interesting because you look at the top league squads, if you're on Wikipedia or something, and you look at some of the names that you recognise and some of the names that you don't, it looks like there's a huge difference between the superstars and then everybody else. So I'm guessing there's not a standardised pay structure or a salary cap. It's just a free-for-all. Basically, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, the Jacques Fries, the George Smiths are on huge salaries. Oh, do, um, I mean, do we have any idea of, like, salary. what size salaries? Uh, I've heard rumours of, you know, at least a million US a season, but... You know the club. The clubs will never release it. You know it's difficult to find out. You know, some of the se- the season isn't particularly long, so the players will get time off. They'll get obviously benefits for housing and a car, and if they've got kids, probably get help with that as well. Um, it's one of those things over here that it, professional baseball will release contracts because um, I don't know. It's just been the, the norm for them, but rugby will never ever release how much a player is being paid. That's quite incredible. <laughs> so you've just had the end of the Super Rugby season now. What sort of proportion of the teams are made up of, say, South Africans who have just finished Super Rugby? There's a fair few of South Africans that have come over. Um, and obviously there's a couple still playing with the Springboks at the moment in the Rugby Championship who haven't actually joined their new team. mm what we're seeing this year as well is we're getting a lot of younger South African and New Zealand and Australians because they've introduced a new category. Um, basically now for a top league team, for this for the 15 players on the field, you can have two foreigners. Um, you can have an Asian passport holder and we're getting a lot more sort of Korean and Filipino players coming over. And they've created this new category for eligible to play for Japan. Now, that means either you have already played for Japan because of the three-year residency rules, such as Malay Sal, who still has a New Zealand passport, or, I mean, similar to what's happening in Ireland and Scotland with the sort of development players, it's young players from South Africa, Australia, wherever, who've not been capped, who would be eligible to play for Japan in three years' time. Right, I've got you. Uh, the old project players. That actually, on top of that, you've also got the foreigners who have been here for quite some time, like Michael Leach, for example, Hendrik Tui, who have Japanese passports. Right. So on any given day, one top league team could actually have seven foreign-born players in the starting fifteen. Is that mandated by the league or the union? That, yeah, no, the union decide how many players, what the limit is. It used to be just two foreigners. A few years ago, they went up to three, then it went back down to two, then they brought in the Asian, and now this year they brought in this sort of eligible to play for Japan status. Got you. Okay. So what is it, what are the chances then of next year or the year after of a seeing a Sunwolves team full of Japanese talent or top league talent? Is that likely to happen anytime soon? I mean, that's the idea. The idea for the Sunwolves is that it's a development team for the Brave Blossoms. Um, The problem that Japan have had over the years is that there's been a big gap between top league. And I mean, at the highest level of top league, the games are very good and it's a very high level, but there's too many mismatches. What... Eddie Jones and, and the people who, in, who wanted the Sunwolves to be set up, what they wanted was to bridge that gap between 
top league club rugby and test match rugby. Right. And to have the best players in Japan playing a lot of high intensity games. Okay, so maybe just give me a bit of background about Eddie Jones, his appointment and his impact on Japanese rugby. Uh, he had a huge impact. I mean, obviously a lot of credit has to go to John Kerwin, who was the coach before him. He laid the sort of foundations for some of the things. He also wanted changes, but they didn't happen. Eddie, obviously... He's been here for years. He has a big uh, role with Suntory. I mean, he was back here the weekend before last, actually, with Suntory. Um, okay. And he basically came in and said, right, this is what you've got to do. This is what you can't do. Some of his decisions or his uh, opinions were ignored. Um, but basically, he said, this is what I'm doing with the national team. If you don't like it, I'll go. And they said, fine, you can do what you want. Here's an unlimited budget. So <laughs> he basically put them in camp for pretty much five months before the World Cup. Really? I mean, it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. And they worked hard. They worked so hard. They were down at uh, Miyazaki, staying in this big resort hotel. Um, you know, they were up at five every morning. They were going to bed at 10 or 11. Um, but they were there for basically five months. So Jones, Kerwin, Joseph, obviously not in order. The union doesn't sound like it's struggling for money. What kind of budget does the union have? Um, the actual union doesn't have so much. I mean, obviously, for the top league, the budgets are coming out of the company's pockets. Yes. Yeah, the union, yes, they have money for the national team. They have money for the, the head coach. There would maybe be an argument that they don't have enough money for the grassroots level and developing the game at lower levels and developing, you know, decent fields and whatever else. Um, and I guess that there are two ways of looking at it. Do you try and improve a game from the top down or do you try and improve it from the bottom up? Um, certainly, the performance of the Brave Blossoms last year has rejuvenated rugby in this country. It's, you know, really seen a boom that, you know, I mean, I went out the other week and I was with um, Michael Leach's sister yeah. and we were having a drink after a game. And she said that at the moment, Michael Leach cannot go into a bar after a game because he just gets mobbed. <laughs> um, you know, now a few years ago, you know, the Japan captain walked down the street and probably no one would knew who he was. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, now Goromaru, I mean, Goromaru is on every train station every train advertising something every commercial break you see him um you know it's a huge boom and that obviously all came from what as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. 
We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Happened at, um, you know, the World Cup. I'm glad you mentioned him because he was a big signing for the Reds. And then he was an equally big signing for Toulon. But so far, it hasn't quite worked out for him. Why do you think that is? Uh, Perhaps that uh, the people who signed him didn't see all the games that he's played in the last 10 years. Well, to be fair, I've only seen him play a handful in the World Cup. And on that basis, I would have signed him. I would agree with you. He played out of his skin at the World Cup. He was unbelievable. He was brilliant. He was a very mature player. He was superb. So he has his flaws, um, and certainly, you know, he's never going to be the quickest counter-attacking fullback in the world. His kicking is very sort of when he's on form, he's brilliant. He has days where he, he's not quite so good. Um, I think it was just one of those occasions where he really rose to the occasion at the World Cup. Um, played out of his skin. But whether that was the real Goromaru remains, you know, in doubt. That's interesting. So we know about Goromaru, we know about Leach. If I was a director of rugby up in the Aviva Premiership, who else should I have my eye on? Um, well, obviously Maffey made quite an impact at Bath before he left. Um, Hendrik Tui, he's going back to the Reds next year. I reckon he could play in the Premiership. I mean, obviously the Premiership is... Probably not as well suited for Japanese players as Super Rugby because of the conditions. I mean, an ideal example would be Kensuke Hatakayama, who played up at Newcastle earlier this year. I mean, he is a ball-handling tight-head prop. He's very prominent in the loose. Yes. Now, playing in Newcastle in February, uh, you know, how many times is the tight-head prop going to actually get ball in hand and, and run with it and show his running skills? That's, really, that's a really interesting point, actually, isn't it? So... I suppose you would so, look at the... You know, that's one of the reasons why I think Gorumaru might do well in the Northern Hemisphere rather than the Southern Hemisphere, because he is pretty steady under the high ball. He's a big, strong lad. And, you know, with the kicking game and whatever else, and, and the conditions po- perhaps suiting a kicking fullback more than, obviously, you know, a speedster fullback at times, he, he, he might do well up there. So opportunities for Japanese players in the Aviva Premiership might not be as good for the union as they are for the players because the union is hoping that the national team plays a different brand to, say, how we play in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the old saying, horses for courses. I think, you know, obviously Hatakayama probably learnt a lot up at Newcastle in terms of how to play in the tight and whatever else. And it's probably a good thing that some of the tight forwards maybe do go over to the Premiership and sort of learn how to play sort of attritional rugby, as it were, rather than the sort of the more free-flowing rugby in, 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 the super, in super rugby. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. I, it's something I've not thought of. How much of Japan's style, then, 
is dictated by the size of the players available. And do they have the size of players available that, say, we would expect in the Northern Hemisphere? No. What they struggle for is players of decent height. Right, Okay. Weight-wise, the front rows are anywhere between, you know, the tight head props are all 120, 125 kg. Your back rows are all 110, 115 kg. Now getting bigger and bigger centers as well, probably not quite the size of some of the teams over, you know, in the, in the, U, the UK or whatever else. But there are some very, very big boys over here. And because of the change in diet, because of the the strength and conditioning that they're doing at their clubs, muscle-wise and whatever else, as we saw when they played South Africa, is not an issue. Yes. What they will always lack at the moment is some big, big second rows. That ties up with Eddie Jones's comments then, that he wanted Japan to be the best scrimmaging side in the world. I guess they backed that up as well with the performance against South Africa. Um. Well, there was a game... I'm trying to think who it was. They certainly put Wales under pressure 2013. And was that during the Lions uh, tour? Yeah, it was. I mean, all right, it was a second-string Welsh side. So, yeah. And then they beat... And I'm trying to remember the date. I'm pretty sure it was either 14 or 15. They beat Italy and pushed Italy back at a rate of knots. They destroyed the Italian scrum. Wow. And the Italian scrum were probably just missing two of their first-choice players. Well, so, so yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark Dalmasso did an amazing job. I mean, it, it was one of those things, if you look back to the 1997 Lions tour, when they picked quite a small, as in terms of height, front row, and the idea was they were going to drive up against the Springboks, and that sort of laid the foundations for that win by the Lions in 97. And, I mean, that's what the Japan team did, and... And I'm sure if Brian Moore ever listens to this, he will, he will make comments about it. They had a hooker that could actually hook the ball. <laughs> it's very unlikely that Brian Moore will listen to this, so we're okay. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, he did. Show to Horrier, hook the ball. And what they did against South Africa, it was channel one ball before the South African pack even knew what was going on. There we go. At, at his feet. It was baffling the decision to have the Lions fly into Hong Kong, play a game. I can't remember who they played. And that game not to be Japan. Uh, in fact, I think it's a, r- a real missed opportunity. Uh, they played the Barbarians. And yeah, was, it was, I, was, I flew down for that actually, and it was um, yeah, it was a bit of a travesty. The whole thing was a, a bit of a joke, to be honest. Yeah, it's complete complete waste of time. Who? Well, did... I mean, they had, I mean, the idea was it was supposed to spread the gospel of rugby through Asia, and they picked one Asian player, Rowan Varty, who actually I think he played against England up at Twickenham. He came off the bench and then. In Hong Kong, he wasn't even in the match day 23. Yeah, it's a real missed opportunity not to play Japan. And also, they're coming back down that way next year. They've got their itinerary, and I'm pretty sure Japan and Hong Kong uh, aren't on it. So, what are you going to do? Uh, I think they have, and as far as I'm aware, unless anything changes, because there's such a, you know, the, the English Premiership stops you know, one week and the Lions are playing the next week, basically. So I don't think there's going to be any chance of them coming over here. I mean, it would have been great, especially obviously with the World Cup coming, it would have been a great sort of um, 
chance for Japan to really sort of have a dress rehearsal with a mass of fans coming over for a, a big game. But, um, you know, the powers that be have decided that's not going to happen. Oh, but incredible. I, I think World Rugby will know it's successful or starting to get it successful when the Lions can tour Argentina, Japan, even Georgia. Yeah, I mean, and you know, that was one of the things actually I sort of was putting across when, when Japan first started trying to bid for the World Cup. I mean, obviously it was unsuccessful for 2011. But, you know, I remember being in Hong Kong in about 2005 and going around talking to people at the Sevens, and it usually involved having a beer with them as well. But, um, you know, I was asking them, why, where would you like to go on a rugby tour? Because, you know, the traditional Six Nations fan, they do the Six Nations. They, you know, obviously Rome's a great destination. Paris yeah. is. Then every four years they'll do New Zealand or they'll do Australia. And it's like, why not go somewhere completely different? Why not go and see a place that you're never, ever going to see? And, you know, fortunately, they will have that chance in 2019. I completely agree. I pay very close attention to the development of U.S. rugby because I like visiting the U.S., so the more tour destinations for me, the better. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially for a World Cup where, you know, there is a lot of downtime, particularly in that final two weeks between quarterfinals, semifinals and finals, where, you know, there's nothing happening between the weekends. Mm. Go somewhere new and, and, and go out and explore it. And, you know, especially if you come to Japan, you can go over to Guam or you can fly over to Korea. There's quite a few things to do over here. So two questions about the Blossoms then. Do they have a current regular tournament or do they have any regular opponents? And has their schedule been sorted out for the lead-up to the Home World Cup? Yes. Um, regular tournaments, it's sort of hit and miss. There was obviously a Pacific Nations Cup. That didn't happen last year. And they sort of ended up playing Canada and the USA again. This year, we hosted Scotland for two games. Next year, I believe... Ireland are coming over for two games. Brilliant. I think Italy are coming over in 2018. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some stage England... Yeah, it would make sense if England came over on tour just because of the coaching staff they've now got. Do you think maybe in the future Japan could consider joining the Rugby Championship? Would that even be possible? Um, I think... To be honest, they would need to be a little bit more consistent to play in the rugby championship. I think, you know, they obviously they had a great World Cup. Um, I think they probably need another year or two to just to become a bit more consistent. Obviously, having the Sunwolves and those players getting that experience is going to help. Yeah. Um, but, you know. It's the same old thing. I mean, you know, how many times you sit there and you look at the fixtures for November and it's like, well, Wales are playing Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and England are playing oh, Australia, oh, New Zealand, South Africa, and Scotland are playing Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And it's like, hold on a sec. You know, the, the tier one countries have a duty, I think, to, to help develop the game. And, you know, Japan for years was struggling and struggling to try and get tours and every November. And I mean, that was another question. Japan is a Northern Hemisphere country, and yet Japan were forced to tour in November, where technically Northern Hemisphere countries are supposed to host tours. Um, this uh, year is yeah, obviously different. Japan will play Georgia, Wales, Argentina, and Fiji in France. So obviously things are, are on the up. So you know that's a really interesting point. I mean, 
when would Japan theoretically hold tour and when theoretically should they go on tour? Well, I mean, it's Northern Hemisphere. So basically, Japan travels as it stands at the moment. Japan travels in November to Europe and then hosts in June when the temperatures are about 32, 33 degrees centigrade. Right, okay, that doesn't make a, you know, a tremendous amount of sense. Uh, Scotland boys found out this year, it gets a wee bit hot in June, so, um, yeah. Now, are you happy about the appointment of Jamie Joseph? I suspect I know the answer to that. And what, do you, ex- <laughs> what do you expect from his setup? Oh, no, I mean, I think, I, I mean, to be honest, back in September, when, or August, when Eddie said he was definitely leaving. And I remember doing some interviews with New Zealand Radio and they asked me, I said the dream team would be Jamie Joseph, Tony Brown and Scott McLeod. Now, Jamie's signed. Tony Brown will be part-time for this year and then full-time next year once he's finished with the Highlanders. Scott McLeod, we're still not sure about. The thing is, those three players have had so much experience in Japan. They've all played here for about eight years. They've all hugely respected within their clubs um so they bring that new zealand knowledge that new zealand grit hardness professionalism but they understand japanese rugby and they know how to incorporate the two different values right okay so do you think this appointment is going to lead to a style more synonymous with what we see in the super rugby yeah i mean he said the other day that i mean one of the things he made quite certain from the, from the set-go at his, his press conference was he said, I'm not Eddie Jones and I will be doing things differently. He is going to instigate a different game plan. I think there might be a little bit more kicking involved. But, you know, you've got a genius like Tony Brown directing your attack. You know, there's also going to be quite a bit of the unknown. So I think it's exciting times for Japan rugby. No question. It's hugely exciting. I think the coaching appointment is perfect because you've got a man that's won the Super Rugby. It does feel like there's even more room for growth, which sounds weird considering that he's had so much success already. But the success he's had has been with a team who traditionally have been underdogs. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Highlanders are not a team of superstars. I mean, they've got some very, very good players and they've got some players that, you know, aren't ever going to play for the All Blacks. And yet he has moulded them into one of the best super rugby teams. And uh, so, you know... Same with Japan. We have got some very, very good players over here. And, you know, as long as he can get that work ethic out of them. I mean, that's where Eddie Jones really excelled. I mean, he understood exactly how far he could push the Japan players. He understood how hard they worked. Possibly, you know, I mean, definitely he overworked them at times. But he knew the limit. He knew what he could get away with. I think Eddie Jones is a man that can get away with pretty much anything at the moment. Um, That's such a good coach, so I mean, you know, yeah. (laughs) So um, let me ask you this then. After you've seen the success of Eddie Jones and the blueprint that he brought to Japan, which was undoubtedly successful, and all the stuff you know about Jamie Joseph, do you worry that there might be a change of philosophy that might actually damage what Japan have already achieved? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I remember John Kerwin was, obviously, he was in charge before Eddie Jones. John Kerwin was a big winger in his day. And his philosophy was to pick big players and try and teach them to be skillful. Eddie was a very small hooker in his day. And his philosophy was to pick a player who was skillful 
and then work his butt off in the gym to make him put on five or six kg. Right. I think Jamie will probably be somewhere between the two. That's it. He's I... been here for, you know, as I say, he, he's been involved with the Sanix Club. He played for them for eight years. He's been involved on and off over the years as a sort of consultant. Tony Brown absolutely transformed what was then Sanyo, is now Panasonic. Um, so I think they will, you know, they know enough that they're not going to be able to just turn around and say, right, this is the way we do it in New Zealand. You guys are going to do it this way because that won't work. Well, I hope you're right, and I hope they are pragmatic when they start in their new role. The only note of caution I would sound about Kiwi coaches is sometimes they come to a new country or a new club, and they look at the players available and the talent available, and it's almost like, sharp and take a breath. I don't think you guys can do what I want you to do. And as such, I end up playing a brand of rugby, which is considerably more boring than what they were doing back at home. Having said that... Japanese rugby is in a good place, and with the World Cup coming up, what do you think the key events are in the immediate future for us to look forward to in Japanese rugby? I think we're at a sort of critical, not a critical, it, 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 the next year or two are going to be very important. I think if the Sunwolves can start picking up a few more wins next season under Philo Tia Tia. Ah, is that who the coach is? I had no idea. Yeah, he was announced this week. Uh, Osprey's legend. Osprey's legend, yeah. So, And another man who's obviously been involved in Japan rugby for a long time. I mean, he was an assistant last year, so it, it is a good choice because it, there, it means there is going to be some continuity. Um, and obviously, I think he gets on well with Jamie Joseph as well. So certainly the players are going to know that uh, you're not going to mess with the coaches when you've got Jamie Joseph and Philo Tia up there. No, absolutely not. Just looking at my notes, right at the start of the interview, just to loop it all back around to the start, I did write down, uh, I was interested in why you said the Sunwolves back office was not up to scratch. To finish off, could you just give me a little bit more detail on exactly why you thought that? Um... They've got certain people in there who I don't think know how to run a professional rugby franchise. I mean, obviously, it was a it was a new experience for a lot of them, mm-hmm. but I think there were certain appointments there that weren't particularly good. Um, you know, the fact that despite a number of phone calls from me and, and emails and whatever else and, and meetings with them, they just kept putting things off and putting things off and it was eventually it was december the 21st they suddenly turned around and said right we're gonna have a press conference and they named everything they named the coaches the jerseys the players and i was like well hold on a sec you know the whole point of a new franchise you've got to keep that interest going over you know a period of time at the moment they've repeated it we do not know a single player at this stage who has signed a contract to play for the next season really not one. So were they all on one-year contracts for last season? Basically, yes. So were the coaches. That's astounding. So now, you know, listening to, to, to certain people, you know, the chances are a lot of those players will return. There are a couple I know that are being headhunted by other teams. 
and the delay. And I mean, now that they've got Philo on board, that's obviously a great thing because they can really now say, right, this is the coach. We have got a team. Come and play for us. But there are going to be players who are thinking, you know, I, I can't name them at the moment, but I know of a couple of players who will not be playing for the Sunwolves next year because they are going to be playing overseas again. Well, I mean, I mean you, you know, officially already... Hendrik Tui has already signed for the Reds. Maffey has signed for the Rebels. Obviously, Goromaru is at Toulon. So there's three players officially will not be playing for the Sunwolves. But Goromaru didn't play last year, did he? No, he didn't. And again, that was one of the reasons was because there was such a delay in naming the coach. It wasn't done until December. That's astounding. It really is astounding. And, uh, you know, it should have all been done before the team went off to the World Cup. And there's also um, PC as well. He's He's gone off to Bristol. Yeah, he's left. So, yeah, Tusi Pissi's left. Um, you know, it, it's a shame. The players don't need it. The players, you know, they worked their butts off last year. The coaches worked really hard. Um, and, you know, it would have been nice now in September. I mean, the chances are we might start getting some names now that Velo's been appointed, but um, even so, you look at the other teams, you know, they've already named half their squads or, or, or more than half their squad for next season already. Yeah, amazing. So, I, I mean, I wonder if some of that was just what, just a little bit of a, a insurance in case the new franchise didn't work. Well... Yeah, but and it almost backfired because you know the new franchise was in a couple of days of being scrubbed. Was it? Yeah, I mean there were so many issues about the fact that they were so far behind in naming coaches, players, and whatever else that you know at one stage Super Rugby were suddenly setting up alternative plans to not have the Somals in the competition. So looking at it. Um... Why? I mean, that's one of the reasons Eddie refused. Basically, in August, he turned around and said, right, I will not be going. Because he was originally going to be the director of rugby last year. He then, in August, before the World Cup, said, I'm not going to be doing it. And announced that he was going originally to the Stormers. Although, obviously, that only lasted what, two weeks before England got him. I'm not sure a stint in the Stormers was actually a good idea for him. I mean, if you just look at the politics in South African rugby, and with the stock being so high... A stint over there is enough to ruin almost any man. He, possibly, yeah. I mean, I know he enjoyed working with the Springboks in, in uh, when it's... was it, 2007. So some of, are we hoping to see that maybe next year some three-year deals handed out, something a li little bit more long-term? It would be nice. I mean, I know Freelo Tia signed a two-year contract, so at least from the coaching point of view, that you know there is a bit of stability. But again, it, it comes down to this control that the top league teams have. And, you know, they, those players are, are, are their employees. And um, a lot depends on, and again, it's with this whole hemisphere thing, because Japan is a northern hemisphere country. So the top league season traditionally goes from the end of August through till sort of January, February. But that only allows three weeks for the Sunwolves to get ready for Super Rugby. Oh, my word. <laughs> so, you know, the player, the companies are saying, well, hold on, this is, you know, these players are playing from August through till February for their company teams. So they're playing February through till July with the Sunwolves. When are they going to get a break? Especially if they're playing test match rugby as well. That's a damn good point. It really is. Oh, central contracts a possibility. Um... Well, for that, the union would have to have a lot more money. I mean, that's one of the issues with the seven-a-side team. There's not been, there's been no central contracts for the seven-a-side team. 
it's but who would you centrally contract to? Would you centrally centrally contract them to the Sun Wolves and the Brave Blossoms, or just to the Brave Blossoms? I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of different. Having said that, which of the models actually work? Ireland maybe works. New Zealand maybe works. Certainly Wales isn't working. Uh, England are constantly fighting with the Union Premier Rugby. South Africa don't seem to have it together. The ARU top-ups don't seem to work and they can't retain their players. So, you know, it's not an I mean, easily the, answered that, question. Though, then, you know, the top league clubs would turn around and, and be sort of think of themselves as almost a second-tier competition because then all the top players would be vying to go to the Sunwolves and it's where does that leave the top league and all the money invested by the companies if the top Japanese players aren't also playing for the company teams. So until these issues are sorted out, it doesn't sound like you're overly confident of the Sunwolves being better next year than they were this year. Um, well, considering that they're going to be playing all the New Zealand teams and not the Australian teams, that's going to oh. make it a pretty tough season anyway. Um, and the travelling as well to South Africa. I mean, quite why a Japan team is based in a South African conference when, you know, Australia is an eight-hour flight away and a one-hour time zone. It's It defies belief, basically. Um, you know, I think the whole competition needs to be sorted out. Um, having said that, you know, they... They exceeded expectations last year. If they can get some of the same core players together and ideally get a couple more... The, the problem they had last year was the depth. Once they started getting a few injuries, then they struggled. Mm. And the bench of the Sunwolves last year wasn't really an impact. It was more damage control. What they need to get is just a stronger squad and, and, and more depth so that when they start going over to three-week tours of South Africa, you know, they've got the depth to, to, to live with a few injuries. And, you know, then they can be competitive. Absolutely fascinating. Well, Rich, thank you so much for coming on. This has genuinely been one of my favourite discussions so far. I feel like I've learned so much more over the last 50 minutes or however long we've been talking than I have for the last three or four months watching rugby. Thank you again, and I hope to have you on very, very soon to talk more about Sunwolves, maybe towards the start of the new Super Rugby season. Yeah, no problems. If, if, can I just ask a favour? If you just let people know that uh, technically I'm, Kyoto News is the major news agency over here, so there's a lot of information on the Kyoto News website on Japanese rugby as well. All the rugby stories are actually open for anyone to have a look at. And I also do um, a thing on Facebook and a website called Rugby News Japan, which, again, will link to a lot of the Kyoto stories. So if anybody wants to sort of know about what's going on over here, there are stories out there in English. And I'm obviously on Twitter as well if people want to uh, to follow me and, and find out what sort of goes on week in, week out over here. What is your Twitter handle so everyone can find you? It is, good question, I think it's uh, <laughs> Freeman Rugby JPN. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure that I retweet as many articles as you send me. And I can actually vouch for the quality of the articles because I was put in touch with you by a member of Twitter who recommended you as the oracle of all things Japanese rugby. So thank you once again. Absolutely fascinating. And we will get you on again soon. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks. Definitely one of my favourite interviews to date. Look up Rich on Twitter. Really, really good follow. Also look up us. 
at Rugby Dungeon, at Jay Beardmore, and for even more rugby, a little bit more lighthearted, the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast, at Rugby Podcast. And of course, don't forget our sponsors, Field and Flower, uh, which is Rugby 20 code, if that's what you want to do, and of course, Beer 52 code Egg 20. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, and actually, just looking on my phone now, I've got a confirmation that next week's guest is already booked, and I'll tease it a little bit. It's going to be a fascinating one. So look out for that. It will be out on Thursdays from now on rather than Wednesdays. So I will see you hopefully all next Thursday. Bye-bye. Hello all, it's Rugby Dungeon time again, which I'm sure you're aware because you've downloaded it. So you obviously knew that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you don't already subscribe, do so. If you do subscribe, please leave me a review. So there you go. Pretty standard drills for you. You can find me on Twitter at Jay Beardmore. You can find this podcast at the Rugby Dungeon. And you can find the Egg Chasers Rugby Podcast at Rugby Podcast. That comes out every Monday. And as for this podcast, you'll notice we're a little bit late. We are coming out from now on every Thursdays. So look so look out for that. Today's guest is Rich Freeman. Trying to get 60 consecutive minutes of Rich's time is almost impossible. He's such a busy man. But I've finally, finally done so, and I can tell you right now, I am so glad that I did. I was put in touch with Rich through a Twitter follower of mine when I had an inquiry about Japanese rugby. This guy's knowledge on Japanese rugby is second to none, and it is completely fascinating. Japan is one of the upcoming nations. They obviously did very well in the World Cup. They've now got a super rugby franchise, so sit up and pay attention. Before any of that, though, let's just have a quick word for our two sponsors today, of course, we've still got Field and Flower, who have supported us from the very start, the, pro- the provider of subscription grass-fed meat direct to your door. Go on the website, Field and Flower, use our code RUGBY20. I won't go into it again because, let's face it, we do it every week here. So, so unless you're new, you know exactly what the drill is. Our second sponsor today is Beer52, good friends of the Egg Chasers Rugby podcast. And they work with only the most interesting breweries to get you the best beers that the UK has to offer. Let's face it, I don't need to describe this service any further. It's very good, the beer is excellent, and it comes direct to your door. Check them out. Check them out, even if it's just a laugh at some of the hipster names of some of the beers. But I tell you what, these guys really know how to brew and how to select beers. Beer52, our code, Rugby20. Okay, guys, I think it's about time for a rugby interview. So, sit back, and I hope you enjoy it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. ba 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 